Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. Tonight, I have a harrowing true story of Vietnam veteran Tom Miller. This story is one of many told to my friend and fellow author, William F. Brown. He collected hundreds of firsthand accounts and published them in a five-book series entitled Our Vietnam Wars. Here is Tom Miller's War. One of my grandsons was writing a paper on World War II for high school, so I took him to the Eisenhower Recreation Center in the community where I live. It has a wonderful collection of World War II memorabilia. When we were done, he asked me, Why haven't you told us anything about your service in Vietnam, Grandpa? I had no answer for him. I had never said a word about Vietnam to my kids or grandkids. Too much of it was buried inside. But now, it's time. I grew up in Philly. After I graduated from Lincoln High School in 1965, I got a job making printed circuit boards and took classes at Temple at night until my draft notice arrived. When I went to the induction center in September 1966, I think half the guys in my senior class were there. After basic at Fort Hood, they sent me to Fort Huachuca, Arizona for combat radio operator school and then back to Hood as part of the new 198th Light Infantry Brigade. When I got there, they had too many radio operators, so they made me the mail clerk. I thought I might miss Vietnam, but no such luck. Instead of going over by boat with the 198th, my orders assigned me to the Military Assistance Command Vietnam, or MACV as it was called, which meant I would be an advisor to a Vietnamese army unit. In July 1967, I arrived at Tan Son Nut. It was the middle of the night and they drove us to Long Binh in a bus with sandbags on the floor and wire mesh over the windows. I thought parts of Philly were bad at night, but that place scared me. The next few days were spent in training in the MACV compound, where I learned, among other things, that the life expectancy of a radio operator in the field was seven months. Finally, I was flown up to Nha Trong on the central coast north of Cameron Bay, where our sector headquarters was located. I was assigned to MACV Advisory Team 35, which consisted of 50 or 60 U.S. Army, Air Force, and civilian personnel. Our field unit within the team had six of us. A State Department civilian, who I assumed was CIA, was in charge. There was also an Army major, several sergeants, a medic, and me. We were part of the pacification program, working with various Arvin units in the countryside from Nha Trong to the Central Highlands 20 miles west. Our subsector was the closest to Nha Trong, which is why I was often called back to the headquarters in Nha Trong to fill in on the radio. I carried the standard PRC-25 tactical radio on my back, which we used to pass intelligence back and forth and to arrange air and artillery support when needed. I didn't speak a word of Vietnamese, but there were others who did, and the Vietnamese knew enough English that we got by. The first morning I was there, one of the sergeants took me out on a trail. Before long, we came to the decomposing body of a VC soldier. The sergeant said, Don't go getting sick on me but the guy you're replacing was killed last week by them, and that's what they're trying to do to you. Our sector headquarters in Nha Trong was a large French villa surrounded by a high wall with barbed wire and broken glass on top, armed guards and a steel gate. There were several outbuildings and a line of offices inside the compound, including separate supply and radio huts. I made frequent trips back to Nha Trong, but most of the time we lived with the Vietnamese out in the field and ate their food. Officially, we were rations not available and received extra pay for that. 
We also worked with the South Korean White Horse Division, who were very tough soldiers and patrolled the mountains to the west of us. As time passed, my uniform became an irregular hodgepodge of American and Vietnamese parts and worn-out boots. I was fairly small and chose to carry an old World War II .30 caliber M2 carbine, which many Arvins carried, all of which helped me to blend in. By taping three 30-round banana clip magazines together, the M2 had 90 rounds available, which came in handy. One of our sergeants used to collect NVA souvenirs like uniform parts, hats, flags, and things like that. After I was there maybe six months, he took me along on a trip to Cameron Bay to do some trading with a mess sergeant in one of the companies. He traded a trailer full of his stuff for a load of canned food. We ended up spending the night, and the sergeant cooked us dinner with a big steak and baked potato. They also had a cooler full of fresh milk, which I hadn't seen since I arrived in country. I drank so much I got sick. That night, they put me up in a bunk in the company barracks, and I had a hot shower with soap for the first time in a long time. The guys in the unit asked me if I'd been using my ration card, which I hadn't. They took me to the PX, and we used it up on beer and liquor for them. It was of no use to me out in the field. January 30th, 1968 is a date I'll never forget. In late January 1968, the people of South Vietnam busily prepare for the traditional holiday of Tet, marking the Lunar New Year. Civilians decorate their shops and homes, and the military looks forward to a brief ceasefire, with many Arvin soldiers taking leave as the country celebrates. Communist insurgents are preparing for something different, however. North Vietnam chooses the ceasefire as the time to launch the general uprising, a massive coordinated offensive targeting every major base and urban area in South Vietnam. Viet Cong guerrillas prepare and mobilize, while NVA troops infiltrate the South via the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I was called back to sector headquarters in Nha Trang. It was the evening before the Tet holiday began, Chinese New Year. They wanted me to man the all-night radio watch in the radio hut inside the compound. Nobody said anything, but I could tell something was up. All the American and Vietnamese officers were out at dinner parties. Around midnight, the Arvins fired off a lot of their weapons, which was normal for a holiday. But at 2 a.m., the sound of the gunfire changed, and I heard the distinctive sound of AK-47s. All of a sudden, the two guards on the gate were shot down gate blown open and enemy soldiers poured inside. I could see all this and immediately cut the lights, got on the radio and told one of the other operators and another team to take over the net and called in the standby reaction force in Nha Trang. They quickly surrounded the compound, but there were already many VC inside. I had my M2 carbine and lay on my belly inside the door of the darkened hut, picking them off and used the radio to call in mortars every time I saw a few of them at one place. There was a West Point first lieutenant inside the compound who had just arrived two weeks before. He was a few hundred yards away and I kept yelling for him to come over to the radio shack and get inside, but he didn't listen. He was shot and killed. Afterward, I always thought what a waste that was. I fought on like that until the sun finally came up. That was when I looked outside and saw there were two more Americans hiding in the supply shack. They came over by me and we hunkered down together for a while. I had been issued incendiary grenades to destroy all the documents and radio equipment if we were being overrun. We finally left the radio shack and I set the grenades off. As I turned the corner between the building and a jeep, 
I ran straight into two enemy soldiers, who must have been as surprised and scared to see me as I was to see them. I think we each got off a few shots, and that was when the VC hit the jeep with a rocket or a grenade. It exploded, and I was hit with lots of shrapnel in my lower body and legs. That's how I celebrated Chinese New Year's in 1968. It was the beginning of the big Tet Offensive that continued for most of February across the country. Our compound was quickly retaken. Of the four Americans who had been there, three of us made it out alive, but I'm not sure how many of the Arvins we worked with did. I was sent to the field hospital at the air base in Nha Trong to be treated. I was awarded a Purple Heart in the ward there and put on light duty until my shrapnel wounds healed. Several months later, I was awarded the Bronze Star with V for Valor for the actions that night. They say we were attacked by two companies of Viet Cong with rockets, hand grenades, and explosives, followed by a ground assault that completely overran the headquarters. I had been shot once before, out in the field, and was treated on the spot by our medic and one of the Arvins. I probably should have had a second Purple Heart, but since I never went to the hospital, there are no records. Much of my time in Vietnam is a black hole to me. Although I vividly remember several isolated incidents, I know that's not uncommon. After all, I spent my 21st birthday in a rice paddy. Mostly, I remember being surrounded by death. I believe the Lord planted the 23rd Psalm in my head back then. Whether I survived or didn't was entirely up to Him. That was when I became a soldier. There was a second thing that happened to me over there, which really affected who I am today. The circumstances are still sketchy in my head, but our team was out in the field with an Arvin unit, in contact with the enemy and pinned down under fire. I was lying on the ground next to an Arvin radio operator. I saw what appeared to be a teenage girl dressed in a Vietnamese outfit with a white top, white pants, and a conical straw hat come riding out of a side path on a bicycle. She was headed right for us, and on the front of the bicycle, I saw a satchel charge. I kept telling the Arvin radio operator next to me, tell her to stop, tell her to stop. But he was busy talking on the radio and she just kept coming toward us. Finally, I realized I was the only one who could take the shot. And I did. I dropped her. It sounds cruel, but there was nothing else I could do. Afterward, when the firefight was over and the VC had withdrawn, I made the mistake of going out and looking at her. She was lying on her back, on the ground next to her bicycle with her eyes open. Somehow, I had managed to hit her with one of my rounds in the center of her forehead. She had died instantly. After I came back home, I forgot about that incident for many years. Then I began waking up at night with the same recurring nightmare. I see her lying there. But instead of the Vietnamese girl with the dead stare, she has the face of my oldest daughter. As the years passed, she took on the face of my two stepdaughters and now the face of my granddaughter. It's my own kids, my own grandkids, lying there with a bullet hole in their forehead. This image comes up in my mind when I'm sleeping. I wake up, get out of bed and walk around, and then it goes away. It's PTSD. I'm being treated for it and take meds. The rest of my time in Vietnam I can barely remember, except for getting sick on milk, the attack on January 30th, and the girl on the bicycle. When my tour was over, 
They flew me on a C-130 down to Long Bend, and I reported to the MACV compound in Saigon. I was a Spec 4, carrying my M2 carbine, my 38 in a shoulder holster, and a duffel bag, still dressed in my mismatched uniform and worn-out boots. Filthy? Smelly? Probably. I turned in my weapons to the duty sergeant at the desk in S4, who told me I couldn't stay there, that they were all full. He said I would have to go to a civilian hotel around the corner. I started to take back my M2 and my 38, but he said I couldn't take them into Saigon. I stared across the counter at him and took them anyway. Maybe I had the look, that half-crazy stare they say guys get who have seen too much and done too much. Whatever. That sergeant took one look at me and quickly backed off. I took my stuff and walked out the door. I was still wearing those clothes when I got on the Freedom Bird a day or two later and flew home. When we touched down in Alaska, I found a payphone and got a few minutes to call home. My dad answered and I said, Dad, I'm in America, in Alaska. He said, Alaska? What the hell are you doing there? I didn't have time to explain. When I got back to Philly, it was the middle of summer. The next morning, everybody else was in short sleeve shirts and shorts, and I came down wearing a field jacket. To me, it was still cool. They asked me what I wanted for breakfast. I went to the fridge, grabbed a 16-ounce beer, downed it, and saw them looking at me. In country, we would receive beer by the pallet. We drank it instead of water because it was a lot safer. I even brushed my teeth with it. But as we stood there, I could see my father watching me, concerned. Finally, he said, well, that's something we'll have to work on. I had a great childhood with a stay-at-home mom and a blue-collar father, but when I came home from Vietnam, I was completely changed. One morning, Dad came to wake me up. He touched my shoulder and I kicked him across the room and then went looking for my weapon. He took the week off. After a couple of days, he and I sat around the kitchen table all night long, drinking beer and then coffee until the sun came up. He had been with Patton in World War II, and we talked about war. I think he began to understand. It was the first time he and I had ever really talked about our military services. Before I left to go to Vietnam, I was one of the crowd. I'd go to dances, and I had a lot of good times. When I came back, I was very quiet. I just hung around and stayed in the corners watching and observing. Slowly, my old circle of friends dissipated and I was alone. I went back to my old job, but the business had taken a downturn and was failing by then. I tried college again, but it just wasn't there. I got married. We had two kids, but that didn't work very well either. I probably chased her away. I married another woman who had two kids. We've been married for 30 years, and I know I grew up a lot. I got a job with the Pennsylvania Railroad, which later became Conrail, becoming a manager in the IT department. The good thing about that job was it was mostly just me and the computer screen, and that helped, until I was given early retirement 15 years ago. Vietnam has affected me in many ways. I've had Agent Orange-related heart disease, diabetes, prostate cancer, and a lot of PTSD, as you would expect. I now serve as a chaplain for two local veterans' organizations. The Lord was with me when I needed Him, and I believe it is important to give back. I do mission work on trips up into Appalachia, make hospital visitations, and work in the Stephen Ministries, one-on-one, -on -one, caring for people in distress. My wife and I like to travel, and I play a little golf, but I am still very comfortable being alone. 
My uniform has two rows of medals and campaign ribbons, including the Purple Heart, a bronze star with a V for Valor, and a CIB, Combat Infantryman badge, which I'm proud of. Like a lot of veterans, I continue to argue with the VA over benefits, but I find the Purple Heart opens a lot of doors, and I continue to pick pieces of shrapnel out of old wounds. If you'd like to hear more Vietnam stories, please check out William F. Brown's Our Vietnam Wars. Thank you so much for watching and listening to Thriller Vault. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and I'll see you next week.